Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tactics, and tools to become a successful property investor. Charlie, have you ever sat there with a water bottle just like this and tried to drink it only to get some on your t-shirt and just go, damn, I missed out? Have you ever had that happen? That's exactly why I wear black t-shirts. It happens to me all the time and I would hate to have to get up and then go change my shirt. Exactly. That's exactly what happened to me this morning. And I sat there and I'm like, this is the exact same as if I was not on the mailing list. Why? Because one, I'm missing out on the information. And two, then I've created a mess that I need to clean up. So if you're sitting there saying, I don't want to miss out on any information and I don't want to create a mess that I need to clean up, I got something for you. Head over to propertyinvesting.com forward slash news that I put in your name and email and make sure you're not spilling that water all over your t-shirt. <laughs> I was holding in that laugh for so long then. <laughs> Should we do an episode? Let's do it. Let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. Grant, I have to say, that was the best intro yet. Yes. Bringing the goods. And uh, it's been a while since we've done a podcast, and I feel it ties nicely to what we're talking about today in our Property Roundup episode because, I mean, we took a bit of a pause on recording while you did a little bit of a travel. A little bit. A little bit. And so did the RBA. (laughs) Took a little bit of a pause. I feel as though they were just following my antics and just going, ah, Grant's on a break. We'll be on a break. Yeah, we'll take it easy on him. Mr. Lowe, appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. Oh, so it's finally happened after I think it was uh, 10 consecutive raises. It was 10. We didn't hit the 11th. <laughs> is it, what is if 11 is like everyone's lucky number? <laughs> well, uh, can we go straight to conspiracy theories? Let's do it. All right. Just lizard people. All right. So I had heard some commentary from, I'm going to say some sources pretty high up in the media industry that there was a bit of concern on what may happen uh, if the 11th rate went through and just the media backlash. Like the pause is actually subtly something where they're like, the RBA's copped a fair hiding in the news in recent times. I think we can say is fair. Dude, I think it's been every day since the rate rate pause they still receive them. Yeah, well, I mean, is it so far-fetched to think that they wouldn't take some of their reputation into light here? That's fair. That is fair. I guess you can only be whipped so much before you start going, maybe I should change my behaviours. Well, were you ex- well, to go even further than that, do you think a pause was justified? I do. I do. Funnily enough, I, I did not give them enough credit. I actually thought that they were going to go for two between March and the end of the financial year. And now I think that they hit the one and I think they're going to hold out. Take me further. What makes you think that? All right. So there's this little thing called a budget that's coming out pretty soon. <laughs> and I think they're going to wait to see what's going on in the budget. So do you think there's financial pressure on right now from uh, – actually, I'll frame this. Is there political pressure on the RBA right now to keep rates where they are with the budget coming out? Because obviously the budget relies on debt in a huge way. How do I put this? The bears shit in the woods. <laughs> And, and I also think that the inflation print that comes out in like a couple of weeks' time, like there's no chance it's going to be higher than what it was. I just I can't see it. So I look at those two and I'm like, they're just, they're just going to hold here 
to see what happens and what comes from it. Do you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to take you through some of my own rationale here. I, I think a pause was justified as well. And there was a few signals going on, like we had some banks blow up in the US in a pretty serious way. Yes. Inflation data, while still not in a great place, is improving. So there's enough signs in the uh, – and then the third one, before I go to that next one, Porter Davis collapsing. Oh, yeah. Like a significant builder in Australia, it's like things are really starting to break as a direct impact of rate rises. Yep. And because rate rises is such a delayed metric, and you've got to think about this, right? If you were Porter Davis, it's not like you just suddenly, oh, crap, we're out of business. Behind the scenes, they have known for months their situation has been worsening and have probably been trying to broker deals behind the scenes to merge with other people, get alternative funding sources. So how many months back do you think they knew they're in trouble? Easy. Start a Q1. Like in January. I remember you and I were talking about this where it was like, I'm like, I was saying that I think someone's already broken and it's just a matter of time until they get shaken out, right? Like it's just waiting for them to sort of run out of the bushes. And so that's why they're going slow, going slow, going slow. And then they just start seeing them going running out. And it's like, I see it similar to a cockroach, right? When you see one cockroach in your kitchen, that doesn't mean that there's one cockroach in your kitchen. You've got another thousand that you can't see. And so it's just going to be a matter of time until they come start coming out. I completely concur. I don't know about using the cockroach analogy, but I'm, well, I'm not saying Porter Davis is a cockroach. It's more the idea of you can give me a better analogy, but it was more the idea that when when there's smoke, there's fire kind of thing, right? Like you'll see one come out and you'd be like, oh, there's just a lot more. Uh, it's interesting. I, I came across something on this in the idea of like how much of a lag metric interest rate rises actually are. Yes. Did you, Have you looked into this? Not as deep as you have. So take me on the journey. Yeah, so they were saying uh, the impact of a rate rise takes nine months to that feel the right. repercussions. So if you if you think back on that, it's practically the last nine months where they've started raising, like how much lag there is in the system. So totally. theoretically, if they didn't raise any more from here, like there's still the impacts of all the prior uh, rate rises. And to use Porter Davis as the example here again, you know, at the start of their year, they knew they were in trouble, but it took months before that would actually be unfolding as them collapsing. Now, in that time, there's possibly other businesses that have found alternative fundings or taken on uh, mergers or whatever it is, but that doesn't mean it was good for their business. They might have had to take on ridiculous interest rates or unfavorable deals to where like there's actually a damaged part of the economy sitting within that. And you'd have to argue that new home building appears to be a damaged part of the economy right now, very dangerous place to be playing if you are playing in there. So I was kind of thrilled to see that the RBA has paused and that we will give the economy a chance to see what it produces here. Because if interest rates are going down, which there are, sorry, inflation is going down and interest rates seem to be doing their job, the pause could be very well justified. It may not be about their reputation at all or government pressure or, or a whole bunch of other things, media pressure, another one being here. Like there's all these reasons where it's actually very justified. Do you think this is it? Do you think that there's either just stability in interest rates or a decline? Do you think there's any possibility for them to increase it? And if so, what do you think you'd have to see in order for that to happen? All right. Let's go. Can we, do we get to the speculation part? Oh, of this is pure part? speculation right now. <laughs> What's speculation, Charlie? He's my favorite guy. Well, I'm going to check the date. I called this on social media and I put it on social media because I wanted to make sure I had a record of this and I'm just scrolling through now, scrolling through. Give me a second here. Should have prepared this earlier. No, don't you worry. I'm throwing them 
I'll throw you the curveballs at you. I, uh, I'll just keep talking and just keep filling in some dead air space for you. And I might even sing. Na 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 na. Thank you for the covering. You're welcome. You got it yet? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. <laughs> you can just tell us what it was. I'm pretty so sure I in March. I called the. We're done with. It's on my. You can check my Facebook page. I haven't oh, put right. it down, but it's in March. Um, I knew that. Well, in my opinion, I should say, in my view. Now that some significant things have started to break, inflation has started to cool, I said that they're going to pause and I actually, my view here is they're done. Now there's only one thing that could stop that and that is if this pause leads to a massive rally in the markets and property prices and they raise it again just to kill sentiment. But my, uh, what do they call it, base case, I think we're done from here and I think they hold this position till late Q3 and then we get one cut this year is my view. Now my other base case, I will say if that doesn't happen, one rise in this quarter, so Q2, just to make sure that they uh, give everyone the it's, – it's like they've given everyone – it's like, all right, I'm going to stop raising rates, you know, but behave, economy, behave. Don't go out there and get crazy with spending. And then we all get out there and get crazy with spending. They go, Whoosh. What did I say? Get back in line. (laughs) I told you where to stand. It's like one of those that comes through. And then I think it comes through as well. I just, I don't think the economy can take much more is my view from here. Dude, did you, Deloitte came out and said that exact same thing. They actually reckon that they've gone uh, uh, 50 basis points too far. And they actually said that now they didn't realize the impact that it would have had. And they said that they should have basically stopped at the start of the year. And they had all this data that kind of supports it and backs it up. So it's it's interesting because I, I kind of concur with what you said. So previously I said two more rate rises between now and the end of the financial year, which is the end of June. Um, you can bring in July if you really want because they meet on the first Tuesday of the month. Um, I'm I'm of the firm belief that I think there might either be nothing or one left. And it's really based upon inflation print, which I don't think is going to be higher. I think it's going to be lesser. And I assume it's, I actually believe it's going to be lesser by about a percent. Like I actually think it's going to be significantly less and what the government does in the budget because I also believe that you're going to see quite a bit of stimulus come out, especially in the property space, from the government for the budget next year. And depending on what that says, I actually think that the RBA will try and take a stab at it to expect on what the second order consequence is going to be of that budget. And I just don't know what they're going to print into it, but I, I suspect that there might be something in there that the RBA will go, we just might need to push one more in here before we stabilize. All right. So I think the question is, what does this mean for the property market is the next layer to that. Now, before we get into that, because I know we both have a view on this, I'm going to quickly run over something that I think is really interesting on this. The CoreLogic report has come out at this time. Now, you've got to remember this rate pause has only just happened. Yep. And yet we're already looking that prices up na- prices are up nationally. Totally. 0.6%. And the one that is the, uh, or the two, I should say, that are most impressive in my mind, Sydney was up 1.49% for the month. Melbourne was up 0.6. Actually, I'll give a next favourite in here. Perth was up 0.5. And then uh, Brisbane kind of neutral. Adelaide, I'm going to say neutral as well, negative 0.1. Hobart down 0.9. Darwin down 0.4. And then Canberra down 0.5. Wouldn't you expect where we're at that the price decline would be kind of keep going from here based on everything that's going on right now. Don't you think it's fascinating that prices have started to rise again in the property market? 
well, especially in in those desirable stay, places to live, like your Melbournes and your Sydneys, I'm not too surprised because they did take a bit of a beating. Like, and we know because of the, the higher property prices, when they take a beating, it's a large dollar figure. And so they're usually the ones that are quickest to rebound back. Because all you need to do is just change the sentiment in the market and the mums and pops to say, ooh, this is maybe where it's going to land. Now I can just reevaluate my spending. Maybe I'll decrease what I, how many times I go out for food and what I spend other money on, et cetera. And then they just justify it. You've also got this rental challenge, which we'll talk about in a minute, coming in where people don't want to try and rent or try to find a place to rent in these desirable suburbs. Like, nah, that's it. I was going to buy it now that I actually understand a little bit of where I'm at. Um, so I think it's more that the the belief of most people in those areas is, great, this is roughly where it's going to sit for interest rates. How do I re-budget? How do I re-afford this? Yep, I'm happy to go again and getting back in. I'm going to say something different. Go for it. I think this is the point where interest rates and property prices have detached in correlation. Fair. Right. Go a bit deeper for me. All right. So I looked at this and, you know, many people will say that there's a direct correlation between movements in interest rate rises and what's happened in property prices. And you'd have to say the rate rises have absolutely had an effect on the market. But I feel like we've just engaged in a force more powerful than rate rises, which is supply and demand. I think the mass bringing of people into the country has now hit the point where it's making a significant difference and this will feed into something we talk about later with this rental crisis where when you really think about someone who is renting and you look at all these people coming in, it's getting harder and harder to get a rental, the value of being a homeowner has just gone up. The security of being a homeowner versus being a tenant with the unknown of if you'll be able to get another place, what your rent will go up. I think we've just added a different pressure on demand. The certainty layer. Yeah, I think that many people out there are willing now to pay a premium to be an owner because being a renter has actually gotten dramatically worse. Yep. And when you look at that, you go, well, if you're sitting there and you're thinking of your family's security – and mental well-being and, you you know, you're really worried about that. Do you think you're really watching interest rates? No, that's, that is fair, especially with the rate of rental costs in Melbourne and Sydney going up, the way that they're going up and the uncertainty that sits there, especially when the RBA comes out and says, oh, they're going up even worse and there's not much stock available. The only great option you got is to go and buy something, especially Completely. when it's on parity to your mortgage, to your rent costs. Is well, they're saying the rents have gone up 20% in some areas. So, you, so you're sitting in Melbourne, rents have gone up 20%. They're telling you there's more potential of people coming in and that it's likely over the next couple of years you'll go up another 20% again. The incentive to buy is pretty good in that scenario, is it not? I'm, I may or may not have been in that, <laughs> in that state at some point too. Well, how do you feel about it? You're someone who's experiencing this right now. What's your take on things? Yeah, so funnily enough, Hazel and I did actually go and look at potentially buying a place. Um, and then we looked at the availability of rents in Melbourne suburbia. <laughs> There's just nothing available. <laughs> and so then we looked at the fact that we don't have a child yet. And just going, you know what, there's an abundance of apartments in the style that we like and we're very fortunate that we can afford where we would like to live and I can probably outpay most people. And I've just said, you know what, this is a market that's kind of suited for me for rentals and we've kind of accepted it. But I'm like, if I had a kid, man, I'd be one of those overpaying for property and just getting in just because I want that certainty of where I want to live, where I want the kids to go to school, um, rents be damned. Like I'm just like, 
interest prices be damned as well. I'm just I'm going in. I don't want to I don't want to flip the coin on if I've got a rental. So let me tell you a story. And thank you for sharing that, right? Because that that is the feeling I'm of people I know who are renting. It's interesting in conversation. I, their inclination to buy is dramatically up. Totally. The right, certainty. So, just comes back to that certainty. That's the layer I'm going to use. All right, tell me the story. All right, so I am rent renting right now. So for those that don't know my situation, I've got a property on the Mornington Peninsula. I wanted to move up to, uh, I'm just going to say Brighton area because in that region somewhere I was cool with. At the time, getting to the city quickly was a priority for me. We couldn't find a property we wanted to buy, so we elected to rent. We said, we'll rent something for 12 months. Something will come up along the way and we will potentially buy that property. Thinking stock would improve. I just have to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I love being on this journey with you. Got that one wrong. (laughs) I said there wasn't good stock at the time then. And I somehow thought, do you know what? You know, things are, the economy's opening up, things are getting good, stock will start to flow again, it'll all be fine. I misread that wholeheartedly. <laughs> anyway, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a property did come up that Bianca and I said, look, it's not perfect, but we don't want to be a renter anymore. We looked at this and said, if there's an opportunity to buy a property in this area, I'm going to actually prioritize buying now even in a property I don't like as much or isn't right over having this looking over my head right now because once this lease ends, there's no guarantee that we'll be able to renew this lease or get something in the area. And to give you context, when we started looking for rentals in this area, I had about 10 properties to choose from. I remember looking for them. I went on uh, realestate.com.au and looked for similar properties today. There's two and they're significantly worse and more expensive. And more expensive too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and if we want to stay in this area, yeah. Very concerning. Yeah. And that's the that's the interesting thing. I remember being in Rose Bay, um, which is in near Sydney, a year and a half ago looking for rentals. Dude, there's nothing in these desirable locations at all. Like you just have no choice but to buy. Um, and it's even worse now. And there was like nothing then. <laughs> and I'm arguing that 10 when you were looking is still low. It was two. for the time. I'm going to be real. Like we even compromised a little bit then. Yeah. But at least we had options. Right? Okay. We had a few we could look at where now it's like not so much. Um, anyway, so we found a property and we went to the open. Now, again, this is a dangerous word. I'm thinking rates have gone up. It's, you know, it's an expensive area. We might land ourselves a bargain here. Um, you know, there's not a lot of stock, but is there a lot of demand? Like we'll go and have a look at it. So I get ready to go to this open inspection and I go there expecting there to be maybe three other people looking at the property. Dude, you'd swear I was going to an open house party. (laughs) I kid you not, I think there was more than 40 people at this open. Yeah, It was packed, absolutely packed. And um, even at the open, people were throwing out bids higher than the asking. Yep. Isn't that a very different view than what you had been potentially hearing elsewhere? A property prices crash, John. Yeah, well, <laughs> when I saw this report after, it kind of hit me that it's like, oh, this is actually more of what's represented here is that prices are going up again. And like I looked at the key driver and myself and said it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of people that were there were in a similar situation. Totally. I don't, I don't think it was like uh, distress selling. I think it was like, no, no, we think we can do 
well out of this. Yep. And people just sitting there in the same position. I, I wondered the the searches on realestate.com.au for your area and the correlation between the amount of people at this open for house inspection. I reckon it would have been huge. Like, so what has changed for you now that you've seen that? Like, do you just sit there and try and go, you know what, I'm willing to overpay for this just again because the pain of renting or the potential of when the lease ends, pain might be higher? Or is this a, oh, man, there's something else going on here? Like, how are you playing it? Yeah, I'm of the view, and I've said this numerously on the podcast itself, that one of the worst things you can do is buy too much house. Yep. I sincerely believe that if you want to be wealthy, one of the sacrifices you may need to make is delaying buying a dream home to make sure you can get enough investments compounding for you so that later on in life, that compounding effect is the thing that looks after you. And I made that choice. Like I've bought a numerous amount of other properties um, at this time and it's got me into a fantastic position. I'm not willing to sacrifice what it would be to buy a property in this area at this point because I don't think it's a good deal at the prices that are there. I think it would take me backwards in my circumstance. It would prevent me from doing other investing. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, it doesn't feel right. It feels like that type of move, even though it might turn out well long-term, would have me land in a huge cost with opportunity to make the sacrifices. And I look at some other opportunities that are available and I keep coming back to that Naval quote of like, um, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. (laughs) Yep. So, So I look at this and go, how can I reshape this? And uh, this is where my thinking is. Uh, and again, I'm happy to pull. My, I'm happy to call my shot here. I'm not. I'm not. Well, first off, there's no repercussions for me calling my shot. I was going to say, <laughs> no one going to sit there. <laughs> uh, but I look at this and I just go, I think the bottom's in. I'm going to call it. I think the rates have stopped or are very close to stopping. I think the mass amount of immigration we're doing here alongside with a bunch of other factors on, like I've mentioned here, on like renters wanting to be owners and some other, I'll tell you another story after this one. But it's like I actually think the bottom's in and Australian property's about to go on another run. My view and opinion now is that I am going to continue to be a renter and if that doesn't work out, I'm going to go back to my Mornington Peninsula property and hang out there with the intent of actually buying more uh, investment properties now. Are you joining my accumulator run? Are you joining me? I have come to the conclusion that in my opinion, in my circumstances, noting my circumstances are not other people's circumstances, I am by no means uh, suggesting they should take on risk or buy more investments. I think it's a good decision for me. Oh, yeah. Come on the journey. Come on. I, Speaking from my personal opinion around my own situation, I'm very happy around my accumulator run. <sighs> Let's get this echo chamber happening. <laughs> oh, there's going to be... There is going to be some good messages after this, but I, I concur with you because, and it's funny when you and I have spoken about sort of our individual scenarios and played these, um, these cases around what is too much house, what impacts does it have, and and the choices that you want to make. It, it is so interesting to see that the accumulation of more properties and against more house of your personal house always outweighs in the long term. I just it's, it's one of those things where when you buy a house to personally live in, it's always the factors of, okay, is there enough rooms for the family to live? Is it in the right spot for schools? Is it where I want to be near the beach? Is it where I want to be near cafes and stuff? And it's not necessarily the greatest investment return. <laughs> it's like, but when you're buying an actual investment-grade property <laughs> versus a living property, 
the returns are significantly different. And I think that's a layer that just not enough people think about. And that comes back. There's to the obvious issue. tax advantages as well. And if you buy smart, you certainly can do well out of a PPR I have, and we acknowledge others have as well. But when you break it down to the raw maths, yes. Totally. Homes are dangerous to consider in the investment camp, in, in my opinion. And I also um, have really learned a lot from this past experience here of going, this whole interest rate cycle and then the supply and demand ratio just matters so much. Mm-hmm. We've spoken about this on a previous podcast, but one other factor that's really apparent to me is just building approvals are way down. People are nervous to build. The amount of new supply coming onto this market is going to be lower than ever for years. Is this a segue into rental crisis? It is. So I think we've done our segues so, great today. <laughs> that was so smooth, man. All right, take us on to this rental crisis. <laughs> All right. Great. So nationally... V- rental vacancies are the, like at the lowest ever practically now. Yeah. And uh, I, not that I watched the news, but I suspect if I turned it on, I'd probably see something about it mentioned uh, in this time from here. We've got n- very little new supply coming on due to the impacts of interest rates and it just not being profitable for developers to build right now and the risk of builders and material costs and all the rest. Australia is in a very difficult pos- uh, position with this rental crisis with mass amounts of people coming into the country and essentially I'm not sure where they're actually putting them is at this point now. I have asked that question and I don't know where they're putting them. Are you not a little bit tempted to go to the airport and just like follow some people and see what happens? I really am in a non-stalky way. I'm just like, all right, he's coming in the country. Where are you going? We go. There's no space, but you're going somewhere. I might have been at the international airport yesterday morning and thought the exact same thing. And uh, I was I was actually curious how many of them are actual immigrants coming across into Australia because I'm like, there's just a large quantity of people coming in. Because it's something crazy, isn't it? I'm just going to do the maths on it really quickly here. It'll be about 1,000 people a day if that's the maths you're going for. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. literally going for. It's like yeah. So there's like 1,000 people a day coming in that need a place to live and I'm like – it's of no surprise all the rental stocks drying up then. Yeah, and this was this was the thing when I was when I, and I've spoken about this before when I was thinking about the rental crisis. I'm like, there's just so many perceived cons for the property uh, market, which are like I always think of them as like 10, 20 kilo children. It's like, well, interest rates are up and like wage growth's not growing, and you've got like borrowing capacities and like cash flow positive properties and all these things. It's like pulling on this rope, and then on the other side, you've just got immigration and dwelling shortages or like the, the supply versus demand as just like one 200 kilo adult <laughs> just on this one side of the tug of the pulling rope just like leaning back and it's just like you just never win. The 10 kids will just never win. And so I found it interesting. The RBA came out with an announcement uh, recently where they were talking about how rents and ultra-low vacancies are actually going to continue smashing the tenants for years to come. Um, and they were actually talking about how the rental households are more likely than the mortgagee households, so the people who have got mortgages, to experience financial stress, which means now you've got a whole heap more people trying to buy up the houses for sale, which means there's less houses for rent because all of these property investors are like, hey, maybe now is the right time for me to sell the property, <laughs> which means it's a not another rental property on the market. It's actually going to create a tougher problem. And so I was looking at this going, Charlie, how would I solve it? How would I sit there and look at if I was in a, a political job, which I probably will never be in my lifetime, how would I try and swing the bat to solve this problem? 
and you and I have spoken about. Well, maybe you just convert some old buildings, Charlie. Should we go there? We brainstormed this a little we bit have before. Brainstorm- <laughs> I'm just going to go to Rialto and I'm just going to turn the Rialto in Melbourne into apartment buildings. Doesn't work like that, Grant. Why, Mr. Plumber? <laughs> Do you know, I never thought my plumbing apprenticeship would come in so handy as it is right now, but it, it has. So what what a lot of people don't realise is when uh, buildings are put together, a commercial building is built differently to one that is for residential use. And the main reason for that is drainage. So in an office building, have you ever noticed that like sometimes the toilets are in the same position it's on every floor spot. near yeah. the centre? And there's no like sinks like against the windows? Yep. Yeah, so that's to save the amount of room they need between each floor oh, for right, the to allow for yeah. the water to fall, right? So if you started recalibrating all these uh, buildings to be apartments, what you would actually find is they would have to knock out a lot of levels and redo all the floor heights to make a lot of them work. So it's not that simple to re-engineer a building or refurb a building in a way that may work. I mean, there's a few that may, like they might have very favourable setups. Ones or something. Yep. Yeah, or there might be some that had extremely high ceilings in the offices and they could be reconverted. Or it might make sense to do like luxury apartments, right, where it's like you just take up two floors and they're like really large apartments in some cases. But overwhelmingly, if you look at an office building today and say let's turn this into apartments, it may not necessarily turn out to be the project people think it could be. Well, because that was funny. I've heard people recommend that, and I thought that that was logical until I talked to you about it. And I'm like, so this, so turning all these empty office buildings into apartments is probably not going to work. Or even if it does, it's probably not going to produce the volume that you're looking for that would actually try and resolve all these things. And just to say context, I have worked on the high rises in Melbourne. Like I have done this. <laughs> I have been in them and seen them. This isn't a guess. <laughs> this is someone who's actually done the thing. Yeah, because when they build, they try and do it. They don't sit there and go, oh, maybe this will be an apartment building one day instead (laughs) of offices. We better put that provision in. No, they are like, when they build something, it's like engineered for money. It's a capitalist play. They're not putting provisions for anything in. Yeah. It's more space to rent out is better. More space between floors is expensive to create. So then I came to the second one, which was, okay, well, maybe we're just going to build some more buildings, Charlie. Maybe maybe the ideal outcome is just go high density. Like we become like those really big cities that just have skyscrapers and, and apartment buildings everywhere because you swing one bat and you knock out a couple hundred apartments in one swing and we're good. I don't know if you've seen the uh, building approvals recently, Charlie. They're not looking too good. <laughs> well, not only that, right? How long it takes to do that? that so even if they said, yes, let's do it now, that's years and years before that supply comes on to... Uh, market and man Tim Gurnham, who I um, if anyone is, I th- although he probably builds in other states uh, as well he as does. Melbourne. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. There you go. I think he built something in Queensland. But he was expressing that some of his projects take twelve months just to plan, mm-hmm. like just to get drawn up. And that's like, okay, so that's twelve months to draw them. What about the government bureaucracy, getting the builders and quoting process? Like, there's a lot that goes into that. Like from go to woe for a massive, let's say, in a big apartment building in the city. Like this can be a five-year project. And we have already seen supply chain challenges previously when we had these building booms <laughs> come through, right? So we know that there is, a, there is a finite supply that we can pull in. So then I, so I sat there and I said, okay, well, that potentially is a solution. It's just going to take a couple It's days. going to be part of the solution, yes. <clears throat> totally. And so then I said, okay, well, maybe you go to your large developers like your Stocklands of the world and try and incentivize them to release some of their 
play some of the houses. So just build houses quicker because a lot of the these sort of companies have got a lot of land locked up. They're just waiting to go and deploy and build on top of it. And I'm like, interest rates quite high. Building costs are extremely high. And these are capital-based companies. Like they actually try to make profits, Charlie. <laughs> and so, but, it, but even then, let's go deeper on that one. Pretend we subsidized it. We said, look, we'll give you, a few, whatever your loss is, we'll give we'll it to you. It. We'll cover it so you make the same thing. Yep. Have you considered where that land is? Mm. I know where some of that land is. I did six months with Stockland um, as like a bit of a consulting into them. I know where it is. It's not the, what everyone wants. If you actually go on realestate.com, there's plenty of houses available, just not in locations that people want to live or are convenient for working or appropriate dwellings. Like, And, and that brings me to my next one was I just said, okay, well, you could do that again. You need to incentivize people to go out there because there's also dwellings that are currently built and available in what I would call like unideal locations. Like for some people, they would love it and they would be really happy to live there, but they're currently available and people aren't going there now, which means that you really have to incentivize people as the tenants, not just the builders to go and build them, but really incentivize the buyers to go and buy them or rent them. I've got it solved, Grant. Good yeah. golf courses. <laughs> if I've seen something that could incentivize people to move out to the middle of nowhere, good golf courses. <laughs> Golf courses and wake parks, like this, <laughs> those are the two that everyone wants because we fit into those demographics and those exact people. Great. <laughs> you should you should go to talk to your member of parliament. This is perfect. So then, so then I'm like, okay, well, that maybe they're not going to – they could be a component of the solution, like incentivize people to go and rent or buy out there, incentivize people to go and build out there. Again, you're just creating more stimulus for the government to go and do the things. But sure, potential solution. I got you. I'm in. Then I'm like, okay, well, you could cut immigration. And we just don't pull in as many people, Charlie. But then I I'm can't like, say that happening. <laughs> no, I'm like, but then you impact the economy, like, your GDP. The, like, can we, the can we call it out? Like, can we just say the thing that it's like if we deported 400,000 people a year instead of imported 400,000 people a year, you Maybe. would solve inflation and the housing crisis in one. Uh, totally. totally. Demand would go and inflation would sub, like it fixes so many things do i think that's going to happen at all no chance no chance especially when they're proactively spending millions of dollars to decrease the time it takes to approve visas and bring people like they're investing in making it shorter to bring more people in so then i said okay well, maybe co-living charlie maybe maybe people aged 18 to 25 want to stay with their parents longer maybe uh, a a subsection of the immigrants want to live together and maybe their family and all those kind of things. I'm like, sure, maybe. Can I throw in one point in that? Go for it. First time someone showed me a rooming house, I almost laughed. Right? I was like, this isn't going to take off. People aren't going to want to live in rooming houses. I was wrong. People do. In this environment, I think that becomes a desirable – having a rooming house is better than some of the alternatives now. Totally. The scale is being reset. Totally. Living so with your parents longer is now more ideal than going into rent you can't afford or being under financial stress. Totally. And it was – so I was looking at this and I said, okay, well, that, again, could be a component of it. But it's like 8% of current renters are 18 to 25. Like you're not going to move the needle of the current – like 92% of renters aren't in that bracket, right, <laughs> which are probably people who are married, got a family, et cetera. And so I go, okay, well, you're just going to have another fraction of a percent of a change, right? Like you're not, it's not a one swing of a bat and you solve it with that one. So I look at it, I'm like, the only solution is doing a whole heap of these things, which just over a very long period of time will come to some kind of solution. But it is, there is no quick fix that I can see. 
outside of your <laughs> terrible deportation example. But I, then I actually do feel like I know the solution. All right, give it to me. Give it to me. You ready? I, I mean, put a lot of I'm, thought into this. I, I realized my, my deportation uh, policy wasn't going to get me elected. <laughs> yeah, I realized the re-engineering of buildings, while that might have a little impact, the reality is it's probably uh, more economical to knock it down and start again. Yep. Um, or try and recycle materials. I don't know. Leave it with me. But um, the, the point I'll make on that one there is like these aren't going to solve it. The long-term supply cycle I think is going to come into it. I think that's part of the solution. I looked at it and said, is there a way government could make it more enticing to live in new cities? Like, why can't Canberra double in size? Yeah, fair. Why can't uh, we start a new city between, uh, like, look at a place like uh, Albury-Wodonga. It's like halfway between Melbourne and Sydney. Why can't we just expand in there and put a lot of intent to creating, like, make it, you don't pay tax if you live in this location. Yep. So highly desirable for someone who doesn't want to pay tax. We start a new city, incentivize it, and we can take the pressure off major cities to change that dynamic. I'm like, don't think that's ever going to get passed either. And before you laugh too much at that, have you not seen at times where councils have given away blocks of land provided you build in that oh, area? Yeah, yeah. To- no, totally. So totally. they do things like this. I would just say they do it at a bigger level. So it's like they go, cool, Um for those of you that can work remotely, if you come and we'll give you a free block of land provided you build on it and you continue to work remotely so you don't take a job from our economy, you come and live in here, I'm like, it's not a bad deal. It's, uh, I think it's I think it's a potential play. I still don't think it's going to solve the volumes. Too small. Yep. won't do enough. You yeah. ready for it? Yeah, I'm sitting here waiting. I thought that was the thing. <laughs> have I, am I building it up? Am I building it up properly? Stop giving me shit ideas and give me the thing. <laughs> yeah, so – I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm going, i got to think about this from a different way. Here's my conclusion, Granny. Are you ready? I'm ready. Who told you that 30-year-olds should move out of living with their parents? <laughs> Nothing. My maturity told me that it wasn't a good idea. Okay, just curiously. And who told you uh, grandparents in this scenario of the family thing should live on their own? They did. <laughs> but yes. Well, my conclusion is that um, what is actually going to happen, and this is what I think is actually going to happen, is that the expectations people have will change. So if you go back 50 years, you might have expected to be able to afford a house in Sydney within five kilometres of a CBD. Might seem reasonable. And over time, can you see that people no longer expect that? That change to like, oh, well, maybe it's a townhouse or maybe it's an apartment. And to the point now where many people just don't have an expectation that they will ever live in Sydney. Yep. So what actually changed? Did Sydney get any cheaper? Did they solve nope. supply and demand? Nope. Did, we, did they deport anyone, which I hope they did. but <laughs> <laughs> They did not deport anyone. Okay, so what happened? So people's expectations changed. Yeah, so as a society, what I think is about to actually occur here is a big readjustment of expectations. I think that for a lot of people, they're going to have to face some harsh realities that Melbourne and Sydney, for example, are a place with where people of certain affluence can buy a property and where others cannot. That is just where it is right now. And I think for many people, even myself in considering here, you may have thought that you could afford a massive home in an area where now you can afford a townhouse. Yep. You may expect, oh, you know, back in my day, kids moved out when they were 20. That isn't going to be the way it is anymore. I think the parents will adjust expectations on when kids leave the home. 
And I'm not doubting some of this may have social consequences, but I think it's the only way society can actually conform to the cost and measures of housing but you to meet supply and demand. Like I'll give you an example. If overnight I snap my fingers and what actually happened in society is you don't move out of home, your parents just down past real estate to the kids. You stay in the same home and it just becomes a generational thing which, believe it or not, is how it works in many parts of the world. Totally. Right, so if that was the expectation overnight is that, you know, you've got this family home and it's just passed down through the generations, you don't ever go out and buy a home, how do you think the real estate market would change? <laughs> you could almost have enough properties. But that's what I think is going to occur here. And if you look at it, this has marginally been happening already. Right, this is a, like if you look at it, look at what our parents expected versus what we expect now. Totally. The, you see this quite a bit as well in Asia where, like, the parents will follow, like, the, the youngest. And primarily in the Philippines, I'm aware of this, where, like, the, the mum or the dad will continue with the youngest child and move into their apartment. And they, they literally have bedrooms already for them. But on the other side, so that's the support on the idea of, okay, well, maybe just our expectations of what it means to create, like, a family unit changes. But also on the other side of it, look at home ownership in London, New York, and like these massive cities, like the, it's fundamentally different, but also the way that people rent are fundamentally different, right? Like people don't grow up in London going, I'm going to be able to buy in London. No, they, they grow up knowing they're going to have to buy outside of London and just rent within location. But in Melbournes and Sydney's, it's, it's almost like a, or it used to be that people go, yeah, I could still afford it on a decent salary, doing a decent thing, et cetera, where we're just almost going to get to that point in my opinion, where it's just going to be like, well, no, we're just similar to the other major cities around the world where like living that close to the city that you have purchased, nada, like these things stay in families now. <laughs> that is the only people who can buy it or the ultra wealthy. Everyone else just rents and they're renting apartments and townhouses and stuff. Like that's it. Like there, there are no houses. Is that not the course we're on? And uh, So I completely concur. But even to get to that point, you're still going to have this shortfall for X amount of years of just pure pain whilst the, those But that's how an adjustment comes into work, totally. right? So if you look at it, yeah, is some new supply going to come on? It is. That's one of the factors. Okay, are some people going to move to different regions and a city is going to expand? Like you look at the numbers, like towns like Wangaratta, Warrigal, Geelong, Ballarat, like they are expanding. Bendigo. Yeah, like these major regions are forming and that's part of the solution as well is that there's, you know, once upon a time you had to be in Melbourne to find good work. That's just not true anymore. Totally. And then you throw in these expectations of what it is to be in real estate to go, well, hang on, you know, many years ago you could go and rent a place when you're young. That just doesn't happen anymore. Times were different. You know, just like having a smartphone is different today. Yeah. <laughs> Things change. And I think that's actually what's going to occur here and I uh, underpinning all of this is I still think property prices rise. I think land becomes a scarce uh, resource and it's very likely in my opinion that over the next 10 years, this is the trend. I, I completely concur. And not to mention the changes in local councils will change as well. Like there are a lot of townships that I'm aware of within Melbourne and surrounding Melbourne where it's like you can never build an apartment here and it's not allowed. But as new younger people come into the councils, like the approvals change. It's like, well, no, like we can try and kind of bring in some yeah, apartments. Hang on a second here. there, Grant. Just curiously, where do councils get their funding? <laughs> You're not going to talk about the taxpayer, right? 
well, council rates. Who pays council rates? The owners. Oh, right. So you're telling me the owners of a land have an influence over to the governing body. Interesting. Wonder how that could get out of whack. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. (laughs) Uh, Like, is it too Captain Obvious? It's like, what council is going to come in and intentionally oversupply an area, crash their setup? Like, it doesn't make sense. They they need this. Totally. Uh, This is a deep, deep rabbit hole that we could go into. Systemic issues here. What a roundup, right? Conspiracy theories and all. I was, was going to say, man, that, that was on point. I'm going to wrap it up, Charlie. Let's do it. So if you're sitting here going, you have actually opened my eyes to quite a few different ideas and this rental crisis I never actually knew existed, which probably living under a rock if you didn't think about that. Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email and we'll notify you every single time we drop one of these episodes. I just want to th- say thank you for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode.